This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, folks. Before we start the show, I want to ask for your help. If you enjoy Kick-Ass Politics, I hope you'll help us reach our goal of raising our full production budget for 2016 by donating on our website at kickasspolitics.com or at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. I'd also like to thank a few recent donors, Jeremy Walker, Ken Mullen, John B., David Berdis, Jerome Hunt, and Mike Collins for supporting the show. You too can be just like them and donate to the show at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. My guest today is a Republican presidential candidate whose name is synonymous with smart business decisions, wealth, and success. The name I'm talking about is not Trump. That's the one associated with bad business decisions, phony success, and overestimated wealth. No, my guest today is the real deal. And that name is Forbes. Yes, Forbes like in the magazine. Steve Forbes is chairman and editor of Forbes Media. He also writes a bi-weekly editorial for the magazine under the heading Fact and Comment. A widely respected economic prognosticator, he's the only writer to have won four Crystal Owl Awards for the financial journalist whose economic forecasts for the coming years proved most accurate. In 1996 and 2000, Steve Forbes ran for the Republican nomination for president. He campaigned on the platform of a flat tax, medical savings accounts, a new social security system, school choice, term limits, and a strong national defense. He's authored or co-authored four books, including his most recent one, titled Reviving America, How Repealing Obamacare, Replacing the Tax Code, and reforming the Fed will restore hope and prosperity. On today's podcast, he'll highlight the startling dysfunction of a healthcare system that represents 18% of the U.S. economy, but pays almost no attention to the needs and desires of you, the end user. And he'll explain how one unintended consequence of Obamacare is that it's actually driving consumers to take more control of their own medical needs and ironically paving the way for a truly market-driven healthcare system. Steve Forbes will also make the case for a flat tax as the one system that really benefits everyone, and a return to the gold standard as the best way to stabilize and grow the U.S. economy. Plus, he'll talk about the future of Forbes magazine in the 21st century, running for president as the most expensive hobby he ever had, and the best advice he ever got, from his father, Malcolm Forbes. With my guest today, Steve Forbes, editor-in-chief of Forbes magazine, coming up in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. 
Today, I'm joined over the phone by two-time presidential candidate and editor of Forbes magazine, Steve Forbes. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Good to be with you. Thank you. Well, you have a new book called Reviving America, How Repealing Obamacare, Replacing the Tax Code, and Reforming the Fed Will Restore Hope and Prosperity. Uh, That's a pretty tall list, I have to say. First of all, how did you arrive at these three? Well, when you're looking at what's happening to the American economy and the global economy, it is clear that uh, big things have to be done to pull us out of these ruts. In this country, we're still stuck in second gear. Uh, for example, we had a jobs report a few days ago. sounded very good. Hundreds of thousands of jobs created. Then you look at the fine print, 90%. 90% of those jobs were part-time. Uh, wages, uh, hourly wages went down a little bit. Work week uh, went down a little bit. So uh, the economy just can't seem to uh, shake out of its blues. And this is having a very real severe political consequences as uh, people feel that they are uh, stuck in this new normal, that uh, they aren't going to get ahead anymore, that their kids are going to uh, be worse off than they are. And that's why we focus on the big three reforms. Uh, obviously, a lot of things have to be done, but do those big three. And by golly, you'll see this economy roar ahead faster than most people now think possible. Yeah, and let's talk about those three. Let's start with the first one, healthcare. Uh, you say that the current so-called healthcare crisis goes much deeper and farther back than Obamacare. What are the roots of our healthcare ills, so to speak? Well, we we obviously start with healthcare because it uh, makes up almost twenty uh, percent of the American economy. It's the most personal thing possible. It affects all of us, yeah. and uh, so that's why we put that uh, number one. And uh, the roots, you know, we got Obamacare because of the shortcomings of the previous system. And we feel that the real, real problem with health care is what's, uh, the, what they call third part, the third party payer system that we have. Third party payers, big government, big insurance companies or insurance companies and employers, they are the real customers of, of the system, not the patient. So you don't have real free markets in the system. Yeah. which is why prices keep going up. We have uh, shortages, people's experiences uh, with hospitals. You wonder if the specialists talk to one another, whether the so-called hospitalists talk to one another. You tell the hospital your aunt doesn't can't uh, take a certain kind of medication, yet they give it to her anyway. Uh, mistakes proliferate. And uh, the, real, the, the real proof of it, the real proof of where the patient lies in that pecking order is... As we point out in the book, Reviving America, the crummiest motel in America wouldn't dare put you in a room with somebody else with a curtain in between (laughs) or or, or give you a robe, give you a robe that looks like it came out of the Salvation Army dumpster. I mean, those things you wear, I mean, where did they come up with that design? Yeah, and you also talk about the infection rates at hospitals, you know, how ordinarily no one would put up with that. That's one of the key reforms we propose. To get the patient in charge again, this hospital should be required each month to post how many patients died of infections received after they were admitted to the hospital. Now, obviously, sometimes there's certain uh, illnesses, cancers, where you're very susceptible to infections, but there are literally thousands of patients who die each year unnecessarily, which is why you're told uh, by your friends and relatives, get the patient out of the, the hospital as quickly as possible. 
before they get something else. And it's an outrage. As we say in the book, no restaurant chain could get away with that. You get food poisoning, as Chipotle can testify. (laughs) And it's a national scandal, uh, constant stories. And it goes on hospitals, the equivalent of it, each and every day. Yeah. And you would think that convincing people to take charge of their own health care would not be a very hard sell, but we've kind of been lulled into this idea of having some third party handle all of our health care. And it's interesting because something I didn't realize that you point out in here is employer paid health care goes is kind of a relic of World War II. That's not something that we've always had. Uh, no, it is not. It uh, came out of World War II <clears throat> because they had wage controls as well as price controls because they're devoting all the resources to winning the war, uh, bulk of our resources. And so uh, employers were suffering labor shortages. So you weren't allowed to pay people more in cash. So they decided to try to get around the controls by paying in kind with benefits, sort of like the old barter system. And the government said that was okay. And that's how uh, we really got the impetus uh, for employer-provided health care. And then after the war, a few years after the war, the IRS made a ruling that said it was a tax deduction for the company and it wouldn't be charged as income to the employer. And so the system took off and it's just gotten deeper and deeper. Yeah, and it's very easy to say repeal Obamacare. Every politician says that. You actually come up with a plan to replace it, which is one step further. But, you know, undoubtedly, repealing Obamacare is a pretty tall order. So if we can't actually completely do away entirely with Obamacare, what are some of the provisions of Obamacare that you think should be tossed out at the very least? Well, one of the, what, 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 if, you, if, if we feel we're going to hurt the president's feelings by repealing Obamacare, uh, his self-esteem would be hurt. You could preserve the facade as they do in some of these buildings and just rip the rest of the building out and uh, preserve the facade. But uh, what you'd get rid of, you get rid of the employer mandate, the individual mandate, mandates on what has to be an insurance policy. You should be allowed to pick your own policy and reforms like that. You could set the stage for more patient control. And one of the things, points we emphasize in this book is that you can have a much more effective safety net system when you have, when you have put, put uh, the, the, the employer and the, the patient in charge instead of uh, third parties, uh, because not only would you get more health care, more entrepreneurship, but you could uh, put in a system, whether it's something like uh, as states used to have, but it never really worked because they never really put a lot of money into it, uh, the, the, the high-risk pools for people who can't be insured, for uninsurables, whether it's because they have chronic conditions or whatever the reason. So we, we do it with food, which is more basic than uh, health care. Without food, you don't, you don't have anything. And uh, if people have problems getting food, we have everything from food banks to food stamps to deal with it. Why in the world can't we do the same thing in health care? Yeah, and uh, you know, another thing that you point out in there is that health insurance is the only insurance where we expect it to cover every little thing. Nobody nobody well, expects, you know, the car insurance to cover a flat tire. You know, it's supposed to be for catastrophic situations. The whole exactly, concept of insurance. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> and so uh, yeah, along those lines, you don't expect your homeowner's insurance to pay for your mow lawn to be mowed 
or to trim your trees or fill up your oil tank or pay for your uh, heating gas or oil or whatever. And uh, we, we, we do expect it in health care. And uh, what we've seen evolve in Obamacare with these exchanges is that people are now getting the worst of all worlds, especially people who buy these bronze plans, so-called. You get, uh, you get uh, it seems like a cheap price because they subsidize the premium, but the deductibles are sky high. And your choice of specialists and doctors is very, very narrow, very small. And so a lot of people are getting less health care today than they did under the previous system. It's crazy. Yeah. And is the biggest point of this, if you had to pick one, would it be to allow consumers to shop for insurance across state lines or what? Uh, that would be a huge, uh, good first step, uh, allowing people to uh, buy insurance across state lines, have a national market, thereby having hundreds of companies compete for your business. Uh, it's crazy that I can buy, and I live in New Jersey, I can buy an automobile, I can buy uh, a, an iPad in Pennsylvania, but I can't buy the insurance in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And, uh, and in addition to the transparency we talked about on infections, another thing that should happen at the very least is that hospitals and clinics publicly post prices for all their treatments and services. So if a hospital charges 2000 for an MRI and another one charges 300 you can see it and uh, be, a, be, be a sharp consumer. The, the, the system that we have now, both before and with Obamacare, wants to make the patient as passive as possible. And, the, and, and so that's why if you go to a clinic or hospital and you ask in advance what the treatment's going to cost, you get a very strange look. It means either you're uninsured or you're a lunatic. I mean, why would you want, why would you want to know the price? They just tell you, don't worry about it. You know, you, you may have some uh, co-pays, but uh, we'll tell you what you owe after, the, after it's all done. But in the meantime, uh, just, just put your mind off of it. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of it. So the patient is oblivious. Yeah, and ironically, one of the unintended consequences of Obamacare is that Barack Obama kind of did your job for you here and inadvertently is paving the way for more consumer-driven health care reform. What did well, Obamacare do? With, 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 uh, with those high deductibles and co-pays, those high deductibles, people are suddenly aware this thing costs real money. Yeah. And now, now, now they're becoming uh, very, very conscious of it. What people didn't realize is how much you spent, what they spent on health insurance, and it was all disguised. So it wasn't just the co-pays and the deductibles. If you add in the taxes you pay on Medicare for uh, on the federal level, Medicaid on the state level, Medicaid on the federal level, you factor in the salary that you uh, lost over a lifetime because employers have to find the money to pay for the insurance instead of giving it to you in cash. You make your own decisions. Over a lifetime, it's been estimated that the typical American who doesn't know this at all is spending $1.9 million on health care. Wow. Unbelievable. Over a lifetime. Well, the second point that you propose is reforming the tax code and replacing the current tax code with a flat tax. For those who may not know, what exactly is a flat tax and what's the upside to it? Uh, flat tax is a, simply a single-rate system uh, where you have one rate with generous exemptions for adults and for children. And this current code, the reason why we propose it, I've been proposing it for years, we outline in the book, Reviving America, How It Can Be Done, 
But people, when 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 you put in perspective, you know, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was all of 272 words. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the the Declaration of Independence, a little over 13, 1400 words. The Constitution and the Amendments, seven, a little over 7,000 words. The Bible, which you know took centuries to put together. 773,000 words. Then you take the current tax code, not the code itself, but all the attendant rules and regulations that are a necessary part of it. And it comes to more than 10 million words. And it's beyond, comp- nobody knows what's in it. The IRS doesn't know. You call their hotline if they deign to answer it. Uh, fourth to third of the time, they give you the wrong answer, but still hold you responsible for it. So, uh, and one one proof of uh, how the system is beyond repair. A couple of years ago, the head of a congressional tax writing committee, a fellow named David Camp, before he left uh, Congress, devoted uh, years and a lot of labor to coming up with a bill to rationalize and to streamline the federal income tax code. The bill came to 997 pages. If you need a thousand (laughs) pages to simplify something, you are in trouble. Yeah. So that's why that's why we advocate just junk the thing, uh, you know, take a stake and drive it through its heart. I'd suggest burying it, the tax code, but the EPA probably wouldn't allow it because of toxicity, <laughs> and uh, and replace with a simple flat tax. The glory of the flat tax, among other things, is that you could literally do your tax return on a single sheet of paper, or a few keystrokes on your computer. Under our plan, a family of four would pay no federal income tax on their first $52,800 of, of salary and only 17 cents on the dollar above that. No tax on savings and no death taxes. You should be allowed to leave the world unmolested by the IRS. Yeah, and you talk about the added benefit of this is that on top of reducing taxes, it, it eliminates the economic costs of $600 billion just to comply with the tax code that we have to deal with every year and you know the hours that we spend on this instead of working and so forth. Yes, and you, 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 you take the money you spend, the brain power that you spend, you add in the IRS estimate that we, uh, the American people, spend six billion hours a year filling out tax forms and just then, then, then ask yourself a question. Take the last 20 years, if over the last 20 years, of all those uh, tens of billions of hours, literally trillions of dollars for tax preparation, immense amount of brain power. A lot of smart people are obviously involved in tax work. Imagine if all those resources, precious resources, had gone into the creation of new products, new services, new yeah. cures for diseases, new medical devices, how much better life would be. So it's a moral issue. Absolutely. Not just economic, it's moral. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Steve Forbes, editor-in-chief of Forbes magazine, back in just a minute. If you're enjoying my conversation with Steve Forbes, then you should read his new book, Reviving America, How Repealing Obamacare, Replacing the Tax Code, and Reforming the Fed Will Restore Hope and Prosperity. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download. 
which can be Reviving America by my guest today, Steve Forbes, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with editor-in-chief of Forbes magazine, Steve Forbes. So, Steve, what you propose is across the board 17% tax across all income brackets, personal and corporate. You realize that a lot of Americans yeah. are going to be innately skeptical of anything that simple, right? <laughs> well, yes, uh, and, and, and that's why we point out in the book very good point that uh, – 30, over 40 countries and jurisdictions around the world. I use, we use the word jurisdictions because what do you call Hong Kong? It's not a country, True. but it's a separate tax entity. Uh, they, uh, 40, 40 uh, areas around the world have the flat tax, and uh, it's worked fairly well. So this isn't something <clears throat> coming out of a classroom or a laboratory. This has been tested by real life. Well, yeah, but the countries that you mentioned are Russia, Lithuania, Ukraine, you know, Romania, Hungary, detractors are going to hear that, you know, and say, well, wait a minute, do we really want to be Lithuania or Ukraine? So how come we haven't seen, aside from Hong Kong, more large scale economies like, say, China, Japan, Germany, Great Britain go to a flat tax? Well, because uh, those countries have uh, very entrenched vested interests. Mm -hmm. A lot of the countries that adopted the flat tax came out of the yoke of communism, and therefore they wanted to goose up economic growth because mm. they knew they had a lot of catching up to do. So they weren't hobbled by the obsolete thinking that weighs down legacy thinking that weighs down some of these other countries. And uh, that's why the, it's got to be done. And I'm, I think Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, He's got a two-rate plan he's working on. We're trying to get him to get it down to one rate and uh, take take it from there. The the American people, if they think this is for real, would support it in a nanosecond. Yeah. And, uh, and you can't have more than one rate. You can't have more than one tax rate because, in the, you know, we did that after 1986. Reagan, Ronald Reagan simplified the tax code, got it down to two tax rates, 15% and 28%. Well, no sooner was the ink dry on the bill than uh, Washington was at work adding new brackets, making the code more complex. And uh, putting two tax brackets together is similar to putting two rabbits together. They multiply. They breed. <laughs> yeah. And uh, soon the code is a, a, a junk mess again. So have a single, simple rate. No one, no one gets a tax increase. Mm -hmm. And uh, people feel that this sounds too good to be true. Well, then we give people a choice. You can uh, go to the new system or if you want, if you lack self-esteem and love to torture yourself, <laughs> you can you can stay with the old system. See which one for yourself is better. Yeah, I like that aspect of it. That shows that you have a lot of confidence in your plan right there. Yes. Well, and since people are very distrustful these days, you can say, see for yourself. You, 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 you be the, you, you, you be the arbitrator. <laughs> you make the choice. Yeah. <laughs> Under the plan, companies will only be taxed on income that they make in the U.S., not the income that they make overseas. Now, a lot of people on the face of it, you know, just looking at the surface of this, many people will probably say, 
well, that's just going to send jobs overseas. But you say it's it doesn't really work like that. It's actually a good thing. So explain how oh, that is. It, 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 it does the opposite. What we're doing now is sending uh, uh, resources and, and uh, companies, especially their mailbox headquarters overseas, because we have such a horrific tax rate. Our tax rate's now the highest and just about the highest in the world. I think North Korea has a higher one. But uh, we're at the highest level. And that uh, hurts investment here at home. And taxing profits overseas means that very few other countries do it. Hardly any other country does that. Uh, so if you earn a profit in, uh, say, Britain or Canada, you uh, you not only pay the tax to the Canadian government, you also pay another tax to the U.S. government, which is uh, which 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 means that uh, there's less investment in job growth, and because other countries don't uh, do that, what they call the territorial taxation system, they don't tax profits you've made around the world. Uh, they get the business, they get the more job creation, and uh, we end up uh, hurting ourselves. As you know, over $2 trillion now uh, legally resides outside the U.S., profits that uh, haven't been repatriated. And about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, we had a brief tax holiday where you could bring the money back, I think pay a 5 or 6% tax, and hundreds of billions of dollars came back home. The Treasury Department got an extra $18, 20000000000 billion of extra revenue just by being sensible for 12 months. <laughs> yeah, and that makes sense. If you're able to repatriate that income without having to pay taxes, then that's more money coming back. It's more that they're investing here in the U.S. than overseas. So naturally, that, that and, should and, lead and to more And it helps jobs. pension funds because yeah. if uh, you have sounder places to invest, means you got more resources to meet these uh, very real obligations in the future. Well, what do you think of Ted Cruz's version of the flat tax? Is that the best of the current candidates running? Well, of the four that are left, if I call them the final four, that's almost like a basketball tournament. <laughs> the GOP had so many candidates. Yeah. Well, the final four, Ted Cruz has the best plan. Now, he's got to tweak this business tax that he has uh, which is sort of a disguised VAT. Mm. He, what, he's, what he can do there is just simply allow companies to deduct their salaries as a, in addition to the other things he allows. That would take care of that problem. And uh, But he, he he's ahead of Marco Rubio, who has the worst tax plan out there. Uh, Kasich has a semi-decent one. But for a guy who'd been in Congress, I expected better and more. <laughs> and of course, uh, Donald Trump, you, uh, I know what his plan is today. I'm not sure what it'll be tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of one of his challenges, yeah. is, and people get a sense of where 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 he's going to really move. Yeah, well, let's talk about the third and final goal that you have in this book, the Federal Reserve. You say we need to reform the Fed. Now, I always hear politicians, you know, particularly in the debates, throwing around this uh, these words like we need to audit the Fed, we have to reform the Fed, and a lot of Americans probably like me, their eyes glaze over. Half the time, I don't even think that the politicians know what the Fed does. So for the rest of us dummies, <laughs> what does the Federal Reserve really do, and why is it so bad? Well, it's bad because it's now one of the most powerful institutions in the world. It's uh, mostly unaccountable for the reasons you cited, that people feel, oh, this is for uh, you know, the brains, or not even brain surgeons can understand this. <laughs> it's a priesthood. And the Federal Reserve officials are very careful when they testify in Congress to make sure you don't understand what they're saying, 
you know it's the English language, but you can't quite grasp what uh, what 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 they're getting at. And they uh, then say, then and then the, the implication is it's not because they're being uh, confusing; it's just because you're dumb and you can't you're not bright enough to get it. So stay away and leave the Fed alone. Yeah. Well, the Federal Reserve is what they call a central bank. It's where banks deposit their reserves. You know, banks have to have reserves to meet their cash needs and in case some you know, loans go bad and the like. And so they deposit it at the Fed. And uh, the government also uses the Federal Reserve for its own banking needs, just like you have a bank for you know, your checking needs and savings accounts and the like. And uh, the Fed also is a regulator of banks. And what we point out in the book in terms of the Fed should be sharply downsized he doesn't need to regulate banks uh, in terms of its economic research. That could easily be privatized. It you know, employs uh, thousands of economists. Mm. And uh, But the basic thing wrong with the Fed is it doesn't keep the dollar stable in value. Right. You know, a dollar, uh, money, money measures value. Money measures prices the way a uh, scale measures weight or uh, a ruler measures space or a clock measures time. And uh, therefore, it works best when it's fixed. Uh, you know, uh, investing is a very risky activity. But if you don't know whether you're going to get a fifty-cent dollar back, or a dollar ten dollar, or a ten-cent dollar, you get less investing in the future. So uh, stabilize the dollar and remove these restrictions on interest rates, which is a form of price controls. And end up, as we explain in the book, uh, it ends up uh, hurting small and new businesses. Uh, they they find it very hard to get cr- affordable credit re- uh, these days. So uh, we we for 180 years we had a gold standard, where and people right. think, oh my God, does that mean we have to carry gold coins around? No, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. All it means is the dollar has a steady value. When you see the price of gold go up and down, that's not the value of gold go up and going up and down so much as the value of the dollar going up or down. It's yeah. uh that's like a barometer, uh, or, or an odometer. Uh, the odometer will tell you what the speed you're going at, but uh, that, that 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 doesn't mean you throw out the odometer if you don't like the speed you're going. Yeah. <laughs> well, what are the benefits of going to the gold standard? What would that look like? Well, 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 well the, the benefit is that with a fixed value for the dollar, you can uh, therefore t- take more investing. One, as a as an individual. You don't have the politicians uh, mucking around with the value of your currency, mm-hmm. the value of your money. So if you've earned a dollar, you've actually earned a dollar. It's a, it, it's like the Federal Reserve messing around with the value of the dollar. It'd be like the Federal Reserve changing the number of minutes in an hour each day. You yeah. know, forty minutes one day, sixty the next, eighty the day after. Yeah. Uh, you, if you if if the Fed did that to timepieces, to watches, and the like, your life would be chaotic. Huh. You know, imagine baking a cake with a floating clock. Right. It says bake the batter 30 minutes. Does that mean inflation-adjusted minutes, nominal minutes, a New York minute, a Mexican minute? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. And on, and on a gold standard, for a variety of reasons, which we explain in the book, very simple reasons, gold keeps its intrinsic value better than anything else in the world. Silver, copper, whatever you want to choose, keeps its value better than anything else in the world. And... Uh, so uh, you just fix the dollar to gold. All that means is the dollar has a stable value. Uh, the, you don't even have to own a lot of gold any more than you need to own a lot of rulers to uh, 
construct a building. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a measurement. Gold is like a ruler. Yeah. And, and you say that it'll, it would, I guess, you know, we're always talking about uh, taking money out of politics and you say that, I guess, basically this would take politics out of our money. So. <laughs> yes. Well, you never want Washington politicians or any politicians to uh, be messing around with things. You know, they, they, they just can't help themselves to, to try to grab power. You see it in the tax code. One reason why the tax code is so complex, it's a great and wonderful source of power to these politicians. If you want yeah. uh, something done, you got to go to them. If you want to protect yourself from something they're proposing to put in the tax code, you got to go to them. So they, 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 they love the current system. Yeah. And uh, But people are hurt when you have an unstable dollar. You know, for 180 years, we had a gold standard. It worked very nicely. We uh, went from a small agricultural nation to the mightiest nation in the world, phenomenal performance. And since we went off a gold standard, the average growth in the United States just has been uh, poor compared to what we had before. It's like trying to do your day without a watch or time piece. Right. And, you know, the Nixon administration predates me. So tell me, why? I, I've always wondered, why did we go off the gold standard to begin with? What were they thinking there? The, the answer is they weren't. Okay, thinking. that's easy. <laughs> they, they, they fell under the spell, which keeps coming back in human affairs, that by manipulating money, you can get a shortcut to rapid economic growth. Yeah. It's sort of like alchemists. You know, alchemists once thought you could just turn lead into gold. Yeah. Well, modern-day alchemists are economists at the Federal Reserve and elsewhere who think that uh, by uh, fooling around in a laboratory with uh, the uh, money, uh, they can create instant growth. Yeah. But uh, money's a claim on products and services, just like a, a claim check in a restaurant or a coat check is a claim on the coat. It has no intrinsic value, but it's a claim on the coat. Yeah. Money, money's the same thing, products and services in the economy. So the Nixon administration they had an election coming up. They wanted to goose the economy. So they gratuitously destroyed the system. They really didn't realize what they were doing. That's what's so ominous. Yeah, and I'm just curious, which of these three reforms do you think is going to be the hardest to enact from a political or legislative perspective? I think, I think all of it can be done. The key thing is to get get a mandate on these things and uh, get a mandate for, uh, for changing the tax code. Uh, Ted Cruz has got an interesting plan. He's got to modify the, the, the business tax on it. Uh, he also is uh, far ahead of his opponents on understanding gold in the federal reserve. Uh, I think all the candidates understand the need to reform our healthcare system. Uh, but this is why, one reason why I wrote the book is to give people the ammunition they need to uh, get these candidates off their uh, you-know-what and uh, start start doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, speaking of Ted Cruz and other politicians, do you think that you'll ever run for president again? Uh, I'm an agitator now. Okay. And uh, to agitate and educate, well, which is why we did this book, Reviving America. And uh, I tried it twice. It uh, didn't work out, so I'm uh, on another path. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense. You know, you know, your dad, Malcolm Forbes, collected Faberge eggs and hot air balloons, but I think as expensive hobbies go, I don't think you can beat running a presidential campaign. <laughs> now, uh, my uh, kids, uh, while they're proud of their father, I think had uh, 
sort of mixed emotions when they saw their inheritance go for bumper stickers and radio ads <laughs> <laughs> and the like. Oh, yeah, I can only imagine. Um, well, let's talk about the magazine. I'll, I'll tell you, I grew up with Forbes magazine around the house. As far back as I can remember, my dad had and still does have a subscription to the physical magazine. He was cutting out articles for my brother and I and putting them at our spots at the breakfast table. So Forbes has always had a big place in our lives. Very, very, um, very smart, uh, very smart father you have. He is. He is. <laughs> he is. And I don't know what he would do without his Forbes magazine. Um, and I know that this would probably be like a dagger in his heart. But do you think that the day may come when Forbes may go entirely to digital? Uh, well, that's been predicted for a long time, but our, our print edition of Forbes, knock on wood, is doing uh, very nicely these days. The page circulation is about the same as it was 10 years ago. Oh, great. Obviously, advertising is down, but we've tied it very closely with the, with the internet, Forbes.com, and I think it's helped the magazine. So, uh, uh, so far, so good. And you see it in the book world even more. Uh, while people love uh, being able to have electronic books, they also, a lot of people still like to have the physical book as well, and they end up buying both. So uh, you don't have to buy Forbes.com. Uh, it's advertising-supported. But uh, pe people uh, do like the uh, flexibility of uh, having having a physical product. So uh, maybe the day will come, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, there's just an endless amount of, of financial data available at our fingertips now. What do you see the role of Forbes magazine being in the 21st century? Really what it's been since our founding, we're almost 100 years old now. We, my grandfather started in 1917, and he said in the first issue that the purpose of a business is to produce happiness, not to pile up money. <laughs> and uh, so we've been a profound believer for uh, almost a century in entrepreneurial capitalism. And that's why uh, I think the magazine uh, still has appeal today. And one of the things, uh, the, the late great management guru, Peter Drucker, once said that companies should always remind themselves, what is your purpose? What is your mission? What is it you are trying to do? And so the tools may change, but if you have a certain goal, which in ours is to uh, provide readers uh, and, and uh, online visitors, with the information they need, and we can do it uh, more and more than ever before because of the flexibility of the, the, the web to uh, succeed in business. And so we write about those who succeed, those who fail, uh, because you learn from mistakes of others. You learn from an experiment that didn't go well. Uh, you look at Steve Jobs, for example, he had a lot of failure. Apple made a lot of mistakes, but they learned from those mistakes and were able to develop a fantastic product. So the way you get ahead in the world in terms of uh, ec economics is uh, creating more knowledge, and knowledge comes from uh, constant exploration. Absolutely. Well, before we go, I remember as a kid, my dad had a book called The Sayings of Chairman Malcolm, which was all quotes by your father, Malcolm Forbes. <laughs> yes. I'm curious if you have a favorite quote or a favorite piece of advice that he ever gave you. Well, I think, uh, and his favorite, I think, was a quotation from uh, Forbes magazine. It's from uh, the Bible, Proverbs. It's been in every issue since the beginning. And oh. uh, the, the words are, with all thy getting, get understanding. Well, the book is called Reviving America, 
how repealing Obamacare, replacing the tax code, and reforming the Fed will restore hope and prosperity. Steve Forbes, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Ben, thank you. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks. My thanks again to Steve Forbes for coming on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at at Steve Forbes CEO. And you can subscribe to Forbes Magazine or Forbes Online at Forbes.com. If you'd like to read his new book, Reviving America, How Repealing Obamacare, Replacing the Tax Code, and Reforming the Fed Will Restore Hope and Prosperity, I'll include Amazon links where you can order that and other books by Steve Forbes in the show notes for this episode and on our website at kickasspolitics.com. And if you prefer to listen to the audio version of his new book, you can download that for free through a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Now, don't forget to subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics and leave us a review on iTunes. That helps a bunch with our podcast ratings. And if you really want to help us out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or you can click the donate button on our website at kickasspolitics.com. It'll help us reach our fundraising goal for this year, and your support will be very much appreciated. Follow us on Twitter at at KA Politics or visit Kickass Politics on Facebook. And while you're there, recommend Kickass Politics to your friends on your social media. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. In the next episode, I'll talk with Australian journalist Michael Ware. He's a former Baghdad bureau chief for Time magazine and war correspondent for CNN. In 2003, Michael Ware arrived in Baghdad as a novice reporter on a three-week assignment to cover the invasion of Iraq. He left seven years later, having gained unprecedented access to the Iraqi insurgency and American troops, and scarred by having seen the unimaginable brutality of the terrorist group that eventually became ISIS. Now, his story is told in a new documentary for HBO called Only the Dead See the End of the War, from two-time Oscar-winning director Bill Gutentag. Michael Ware will talk about the shocking violence of the Iraqi insurgency, the time he was kidnapped and nearly executed by agents of Abu Musab al-Zakari, plus he'll talk about the front-row seat he had for the birth of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and its early transformation into the modern-day terrorist nation-state called ISIS, coming up on Monday. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics.